Okay, church, if you'll go in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, the third chapter of Mark, and we're going to begin in verse 20. So Mark 3, verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. And he, Jesus, came home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Will you pray with me? Lord, we ask this morning that we receive the blessing of illumination by your Spirit. Your word is given to us for teaching, for training in righteousness, for correction, for reproof. It's given to us so that we may be be able to do the good things that you've prepared beforehand for us. Equip us, Lord, through your word, by your Spirit. In the name of your Son we pray, amen. Well, everyone, Tuesday is a holiday, Reformation Day. Of course, everyone will be having their sausage, dressing like their favorite monk, etc., etc., I assume. If not, then maybe we can plan something for next year as a church. Actually, I think that's a really good idea. Anyway, uh, the Reformation, we are, we are, there is a, a kind of an arbitrary date that we point to. And that date is October 31st, 1517, which puts us at 506 years uh, since Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the castle door at the church in Wittenberg. Now, why was this so important? There were certainly many things that happened in the decades leading up to this moment, and many things that happened in the decades after this, in fact, the centuries after this moment, that solidified what we think of as the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation boils down to two main things, two principles. One is the principle that Scripture alone is sufficient. And then flowing out of that, that grace alone is sufficient for salvation. These two things were the, the, basically the battlegrounds on which the Protestant Reformation was fought. So in contradistinction to what is we now refer to, and then they refer to as the Catholic Church, these two principles were what the Reformers in Germany, in Switzerland, in other parts of the European continent, and then eventually in England, that they fought to preserve and they fought to teach. And so we find ourselves, 506 years later, across a continent, or excuse me, across an ocean and a different continent as heirs of the Reformation. We are in the Protestant stream, and we are in a Reform stream, which is one of the streams that came out of the Reformation. And it's important that we acknowledge this. It's important that we look back on it. It's important to know where we came from. It's important to trace these last 506 years. It's important to trace the 1,517 years that came before that but it's important to understand why we are where we are. And so this is an important thing to think about, and it's an important time to celebrate. But going back to this man that was kind of the, 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 the flame that lit the continent of Europe into Reformation, 
Martin Luther. We'll talk about him briefly because as I mentioned in today's text, as we looked at verse 22, the idea of demons are brought up. And we're going to talk about demons here in a second in Christ's authority over demons, Christ's supremacy over demons. But Martin Luther had a very real relationship with the spiritual world. If you read accounts of Martin Luther's relationship with evil spirits, you're going to see some incredibly interesting things. Martin Luther, more than once, threw ink pots at what he perceived to be Satan in the corner of his room. Now, Luther was an eccentric character. He was at sometimes, uh, he, 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 well, not sometimes, he very frequently wrote with a serrated edge. Some of the things that he wrote about some of his, his adversaries, both in the Catholic Church and then reformers that had a different viewpoint of him, the things that he wrote today, he would not be labeled as winsome or kind within Christian circles. He definitely was an opinionated, opinionated and strong-willed man. And so he also had this attitude towards the perception of the evil that was around him. And he, and I think rightfully so, perceived that what he was doing and that what other reformers were doing was attempting that there were, there were spiritual forces attempting to stifle what he was doing. Now, this is true. Scripture bears this out. This does not mean that any time that you lose the memory verse you're trying to recite that it's a demon. It doesn't mean that every time we try to do a church function, the light flickers, or maybe the sound has a little bit of a problem, that it's some sort of spiritual entity that's trying to stop what we're doing. But what Luther had 500 years ago was the, the, a scriptural understanding of the fact that the spiritual world was real. Scripture, uh, Luther writes about throwing things at, at demons. He writes about, uh, about shouting things at demons. He even writes about flatulating at demons. So again, Luther was quite the colorful character. But this is something that we've lost today. 500 years later, we don't often think about the spiritual realm. We have a very sanitized view of reality. We have a very clear-cut dichotomy. There is the physical world, and then there's kind of God up in heaven, and the two kind of sort of meet when we pray, the two kind of sort of meet when we, when we worship, the, the two kind of sort of meet when we, when we read the Bible. But that's not the understanding of church history, and it's certainly not the understanding of Scripture. Now, does this mean that we have the equal and opposite reaction? You may come from a faith tradition, or you may know those in a faith tradition that kind of think that there's a demon under every rock and there's an angel on your shoulder. This isn't necessarily the balance that we're looking for. What we want to do is have a scriptural, biblical understanding of the spiritual realm because it is real. It is true. It's something that even our brothers and sisters throughout the world that don't have, again, kind of this sanitized, siloed relationship with the spiritual world understand. And so although we're not going to have a full treatise of it this morning, we are going to deal with it because it is something that Christ his disciples, and those who are antagonistic towards him are talking about. So once more, go with me to uh, verse 22. It says, The scribes who came down for, from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. So the first thing we want to ask is, what can demons do? What can demons do? Well, the very first thing that we see is that they deceive people. And that they, they can possess people. 
Notice that that's, this is what the accusation that the scribes, these are religious authorities, people who ought to be the experts on what spiritual things are, they are accusing Jesus of being possessed. What does it mean to be possessed? To be possessed means to be overtaken by, to be controlled by, that what you say and that what you do isn't you, it's something else. So you may be possessed later today by a fervor for a football team that plays in Foxborough, where you're saying things and you're doing things and the children are cowering in the corner because you are overtaken by fervor for your favorite football team. Now, that's, a, again, a silly example, but we maybe say things and we do things that we wouldn't normally do when our hackles are up because of what's happening on TV. This might happen because of a chemical substance, either drugs or alcohol. This might happen because of a, a raised intensity level because of emotion. But when it comes to a demonic force, a, a actual personal being, this is something that we see over and over again. We've seen a number of times already in our study of the Gospel of Mark where these spiritual entities can control individuals. And there's one that's mentioned in particular in verse 22. Now, my translation says Beelzebul. Older translations say Beelzebub, which uh, in our Bible reading, we actually encountered him uh, a few weeks ago as we were going through the historical books. And there's a little bit of debate as to who this character is, who this person is. And what it most closely translates to is the prince or the ruler Baal. And we're familiar with Baal, if we're familiar with the Old Testament, that Baal is this spiritual de this deity, this spiritual entity that was present in Canaan that many in Canaan actually worshipped. Which brings us to an important point, that this is something real. This is something true. This is not a made-up adversary. This is not the anthropomorphism of evil. This is actually an entity and a being. So what the scribes are accusing Jesus of is not just being bad, but being the opposite of God, that being the, the kind of the, the, the counterpoint to the good things that are being done by God on earth, but by a personal entity here, Beelzebul. And then they, they impugn his works. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Before we get further into that, I do want to touch on a few things about the demonic realm. And again, this morning is not going to serve as a full treatise. In fact, there's other passages that would be better starting points for having that conversation, but I think it would be worthwhile. When we talked about Genesis 1, through, 1 and 2, we talked about how God created. And as we got to Genesis chapter 3, we saw how Satan came into the picture. And so we, the question was rightfully asked, well, where did this guy come from? Where did this being come from? Well, there's a few things that could be said about this. Firstly, that Satan is a created being. We have texts and testimonies to how Satan fell. We have a few pictures, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, that his fall was one of pride. His fall was one of something that we can actually identify with, which is seeing ourselves in a light that is higher than it should be. You, we, we look at Satan and we say, I would never do something like that. But the fact of the matter is, any time that we put our own will and our own pride before God's, that we are guilty of that exact same sin. But thank the Lord that he has, made, he has made a way out and a pathway away from that sin and salvation through Christ. But we see that Satan 
brought with him other beings, other real personal entities that live in the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is filled with good entities. We often think about angels and archangels being those primary good entities, but also these evil entities. We have Satan, we have the demons, and we have this whole host of powers. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when talking about this frequently in the New Testament, he talks about them as rulers, as principalities, as powers. And we don't have a clear articulation of the rank and file of every one of these entities and how it works both on earth and in the spiritual realm, but we know that they exist and we know that they are assumed by the New Testament writers. But what we can think of when we think of demons as visible, dramatic, personal pictures of evil and sin's consequences on personalities and how they then impact the world. This is what we can think of when we think about the demonic, when we think about demons, when we think about evil, personal, spiritual entities. That when we, when we think of someone who is bad, that a demon is the personification of that. An evil spirit is the personification of that. But it is a real personal being. And as far as I can tell, there is no place in the New Testament that says they're done, they're gone, they're not here anymore. We do see victory over it, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. But this is something that is true. This is something that is real. We see this dealt with in a number of, of ways as, as we work through the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, the things to which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. The Apostle Paul, writing 2,000 years ago, writing after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and after Christ has been given dominion over these things, the Apostle Paul still acknowledges that these exist. And how do they exist? And I think this is the most uh, pertinent thing for us, us to understand today. We often think about, as you drive around, you know, uh, our, our neighborhoods today, and you see you know, giant skeletons and other demonic things being depicted, that is certainly something to be aware of and cognizant of. But the argument the Apostle Paul is making is that the things to which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. A principle that the Apostle Paul is saying here and is actually quoting from the Old Testament, and again, as we've gone through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, something that we see so plainly evident is that when someone prays to a different God, when someone sacrifices to a different God, when someone is an adherent and a follower to a different God, it is not to a neutral nothing. It is not to empty space. They are not praying to something that doesn't exist. They are indeed praying to something that does exist, but it is not to the God of Scripture. It is to an evil spiritual being a personal spiritual being. Now, this is a great offense. This is something that would be incredibly offensive as we talk to the Hindu or the Buddhist or the Muslim. It would be something that would be incredibly offensive as we talk to the secularist or the secular humanist or the atheist, that what they attribute power to is not just nothingness, in our opinion, but it is actually evil. This is the testimony of Scripture. Paul doesn't say that the people who are making sacrifices to Baal or to Moloch or to Ashra, that these things are just neutral non-entities. Although in some places in Scripture he says that they are praying to a piece of wood, he does that for a rhetorical purpose, to show the silliness of it. 
And that is true in one sense, that they're praying to an altar, they're praying to a rock, they're praying to a piece of wood that's been fashioned into an idol. But he says elsewhere, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that behind that, there is something that receives those prayers. There is something that receives those sacrifices. There is something that receives that devotion, and it is a personal evil entity. The Apostle Paul says the things to which the Gentiles sacrifice, they do so to demons and not to God. He writes elsewhere in 1 Timothy, the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, that's where we are, there's the former times and the later times, we're not in some sort of parenthesis where there's the, there's the Old Testament and there's now and then the end times are coming. We are in the end times. We are in the later times. It's a, it's, it's, it's a former and later. We're in the later times. The Spirit explicitly says in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Church, you don't have to look that far in the news today to see deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons masquerading as something that comes from the Word of God. So many things that are being promulgated today with a cross on it promulgated with the, the, the guise of Christianity, are actually directly tied to evil. If you do any sort of, of research into, into the, the doctrines of the Church of Latter-day Saints or the, 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 the doctrines of the Church of Jehovah's Witnesses, you see how closely tied they are to occultic practices, how closely tied to things that are directly uh, uh, in a perpendicular line to the teaching of the Word of God. And then you see so many things today that are being promoted by churches, and, and, and sadly, these things are all over YouTube. They're all over social media. But the things that are being promoted in churches, in beautiful buildings that have historically preached the Word of God, but are promoting things that have to do with the inversion of sexuality, one of the very first things that you see the pagan religions doing in the Old Testament that you see the offering up of children for convenience and for comfort and for autonomy, something that you see the, Is the Israelites unfortunately fell into as they sacrificed their children to Molech like the other nations were doing. And these are not simply neutral moral stances, and they are not simply evil that kind of floats into the nebulous void. They are things that have direct ties to personal evil beings. Paul says they will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He's not saying this to make a point. He's not saying this to, to, to come across strong so that you'll get it. He's saying it because it's real. One more example from the Psalms. It says in talking about uh, Israel, it says they mingled with the nations and learned their works. We call that syncretism today. And we're not, we often talk, think about that in the, in the context of, of peoples who come to hear the gospel, and then they take what they receive from their culture, and they take Christianity, and they try to mingle them together. We're not immune to that today. We have cultural things that we cling to that we need to be in a constant state of pushing away from and conforming more and more into to, to what Scripture says. So they, talking about Israel, mingled with the nations and learned their works and served their idols which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, and they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their works, 
and played the harlot in their actions. You know, I could, I've, I've heard this accusation before that, you know, why is the church always harping on issues like abortion? Why is it always harping on issues like that? And the fact of the matter is, is that there is a clear one-to-one parallel. It, it's not something that we're grabbing onto because it's just what's in the newspaper. It's because it is, along with the, the issues of sexuality and, and issues um, of, 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 of denial of the existence of God, these are the examples that Scripture gives us at the depths of the depravity that a culture can, de- can get to if it rejects the clear, illuminated Word of God and it goes out on its own. There is no neutrality. It's not that you can have a secular state that's going to function well. It's that you only have two cities. You have the city of God and the city of man. And the city of God will find a way to conform into the image of godliness and and a picture of the kingdom of heaven. And the city of man will descend to these bottom, filthy, gutter depths. We saw it with Israel. We saw it in the early church as they were coming out of the Gentile nations. And we see it today, and we've seen it for the last 2,000 years. It certainly was something that the Reformers had to deal with 500 years as well. But church, these are examples. And the reason why is, is partially because of the depravity of man. But there's also evil personal beings that are behind it. If you say, this, how can this happen in our world? Well, we can certainly attribute it to the man's inhumanity towards man. But we also cannot ignore the fact that it is not simply our might and our strength against other people, but there is evil behind it. There is personal evil forces at work. And again, in our tradition, we don't often talk about this, but these are three examples, not necessarily as proof texts, but things that back up what we're talking about today that talk about the reality of this. But there's one important thing that I want to touch on. Before we continue into our text, what about Christians? What about us? Are we able to be hurt by these things? Are we able to be damaged by these? Are we able to be possessed by these things? I think that we can all say, based upon what we've said, that we can be hurt by these things. We can, as we, as we read the news, as we interact with our culture, maybe even as we interact with our family and our neighbors, we can acknowledge that what is being attributed to the demonic, whether it be from other religions, whether it be from just evil practices, or whether it be from persecution, that we can be hurt by this. That is inevitable, and that is true. But can we be possessed? Can we, can we, are we powerless in this way? The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Now where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is there, is, there is freedom. If you have God's Spirit, if you have the Spirit of Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, then that is your sealing and your protection. Now, does that mean in this lifetime, does that mean in this, in this epoch of, 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 of church history, of world history, and of your life, that you are invulnerable to someone coming up to you and saying something hurtful? or someone doing something and damaging our body of, of, of believers here at this church. No, we are vulnerable to that because of when we live and how we live and, 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 and what our, our lives are like and the promises that are even made to the church. But as an individual, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
you are protected. He has residence in your life that doesn't guarantee once more that it is going to be a life of ease and a life of comfort. It doesn't mean that you, are, you have some sort of hedge of protection where none of the arrows of the evil one are going to impact you. It just means that your eternal destiny is sealed in Christ, and it also means that your soul is bound up, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Church, there's so much that we could say about this. There's so many things that we could talk about. But I think that as we, we come to this, we, on one hand, need to acknowledge the reality of evil personal entities. And on the other hand, we need to acknowledge Christ's supremacy and authority over them. That will be borne out in this text. But this is one of those things where people don't often bring it up and say, in the, when I'm by myself at night, when I let my, my thoughts run wild, this is what I'm concerned about because I saw this sermon on YouTube. I had a family member that sent me an article, something like this, and they started to think, well, there are verses in the Bible that talk about these things, and there are verses in the Bible that talk about these things, and I certainly am making no claims to having talked about all of them this morning, but the main points that we need to hit are this. Evil, personal, spiritual beings are real, but the personal being who is divine, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, God's Spirit, if he is in you, if he has transformed your life, if he has sealed you, then that is your identity and that is your protection and that is what possesses you, if we were to use that word. You have a new heart, a heart that is made out of flesh that is sealed up by the Holy Spirit. There's so much more we can say about that. There's so many things more we could talk about. Inevitably, we will. But for the sake of this morning's text understanding that this is real, and this was no mere uh, uh, simple accusation being made by the scribes to saying he's, that Jesus is possessed and that he's doing what he's doing by demons. These are good things to know and be aware of. So continuing on in verses 23 through 27, look at this. And he, again talking about Jesus, called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? So again, if you're wondering who Beelzebul is, this is where, where Jesus is making that, that, that um, parallel. He's saying, by saying Beelzebul, you are ultimately attributing this to Satan. So although, again, and this just kind of proves the point that we just made a moment ago, Beelzebul was a very particular Canaanite deity, but Jesus is saying it's Satan. He's who's behind it. He's ultimately the one that you're talking about. He called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Jesus is quoting Abraham Lincoln here. It's a joke. All right. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. So we have two parables that Jesus uses here. One he repeats three times, kingdom, house, Satan. He's saying that if a house is divided, it cannot stand. If a kingdom is divided, it cannot stand. Satan can't be opposed to Satan. Jesus is using logic to illustrate a point. Jesus is using, is, is using clear reasoning to say, if I'm, if I'm casting out demons and I'm a demon, how does that work? You know, explain, in your wisdom, explain it to me. And then he goes on to, to give an, a second uh, example in verse 27, which kind of puts a finer point on it. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property 
unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. So we saw what demons can do, but now we see what can Jesus do. What can Jesus do? First of all, he explains his creation. He explains how things work. This is his reasoning. This is his rationality. This is his logic that he's using to teach and explain what he has dominion over. He shows that their accusation is, excuse me, their accusation is illogical. It's illogical to say that this is how this works. To say that, you know, maybe in, in their world, they can hold on to two completely contradictory uh, ideas, but in reality, you can't do that. Satan can't be opposed to Satan. Demons can't be opposed to demons. A demon is not going to cast out another demon. Their accusation is illogical. And these, these parables of division, you see that. But then you see, in verse 27, that they're about to see that their accusation is dangerously wrong. And we'll see how that plays out in the next couple of verses. But Jesus shows how he dominates his creation, how he is king over his creation, how he is God over his creation. He's already demonstrated that he is God over the, uh, the, the, the world, the natural world. He's able to, to, to stop, and we see this in other places too. He's able to, uh, to walk on water. He is able to stop a storm. He's able to do that with the natural world. He's able to do that with our bodies. He's able to heal the sick, and he's able to heal the lame. We've seen how he's forgiven sins. He is God of the spiritual things. But he is God of spiritual things as it relates to man's souls and man's heart, but he's also God over those things which required so much concern, care, thought, effort, and fear of the scribes and Pharisees, and that is demonic entities. Jesus is God over that. Christ is Lord over all. We have a remarkable picture of this in Revelation chapter 20. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven and having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And right there we have the most concise uh, articulation of this, this scripture-wide consensus of, of who Satan is. And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. I mean, this is a picture of Christ's dominion, of Christ's binding of the strong man. In Matthew, in the same, you know, we're studying Mark, but simply to show what's happening here, in the parallel passage in Matthew, chapter 12, Jesus says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is showing that he is not simply one who is able to kind of move things around. He is not able to, you know, to, to, okay, he just took the demons and he threw them in the pigs. Now where are the demons? You know, he just took the demons out of this guy and, and now the threat is that seven more are going to come back in. You know, it's, it's not that Jesus is only able to manipulate things slightly. He is illustrating that he is sovereign over these things and that if he does this kind of thing, if he casts out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. And Jesus is casting out demons. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus has cast out demons and is illustrating that he is present and his kingdom is coming in fullness. Jesus dominates all of his creation. So what started as an accusation that Jesus is casting out demons by demons... He refutes 
does so saying it's illogical, but also does so by illustrating that this is the kind of thing that is going to happen. This is the kind of thing that is happening when Messiah comes. This is the kind of thing that happens when Christ comes. This is the kind of thing that happens when God is, is reconciling all things, all authority given to him on heaven and earth, reconciling all things unto himself. So we've established what demons can do. We've established what Jesus can do. And we'll look at what this means. What does this mean? But, the first, but before we get to that, before we get to these final verses of our text, this ought to give peace to you, church. What sometimes can happen, and I think why Protestant churches and Protestant churches of our stream in particular are very wary and hesitant to talking about demons and talking about spiritual things is because there's an undue emphasis that often gets placed on this. Where you know the guy who's the angel guy, the demon guy, that's what they want to talk about. That's kind of their, their, what's in their, their headlights. But if you take the weight of Scripture, I mean, how many chapters, how many verses are, are, are concerned with this thing? Now, that doesn't mean that we weight what is important by how many times it's mentioned. I mean, when we talk about the authority of Scripture, when we talk about the nature of the Trinity, there certainly isn't this enormous emphasis on the clear articulation of those things, but it is present, Genesis to Revelation. The same thing is true when it comes to spiritual matters. It's mentioned, it's assumed, but it's never intended to have the forefront place in our minds and in our walks with God. What is true? Jesus mentions, excuse me, the, the gospel mentions these, these demons, but then what does Jesus talk about? Four times, two parables, four times in the verse that we just read. How he is bigger, he is better, he is sovereign. He is in control. He has bound that. So even if it was 15 chapters talking about how bad demonic entities are and one chapter at the end talking about how Jesus has bound them, that is where our emphasis needs to be, the good part of the story. So many of the stories that we enjoy, so many of the, the, the movies that we like to watch, it's a train wreck up until that last minute. It's a train wreck up until that last scene. But in that last scene, we see the resolution and we end with that that things are brought back to resolution, that things are brought to a better place. We need to have that in our minds, that Jesus has bound the strong man, that he is taken care of. <clears throat> so what does this mean? Verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Well, in these last few minutes that we have, I'll just talk about this. A very, very clear passage. This is one of the more concerning passages as people read through Scripture, the idea of an eternal sin or an unforgivable sin. But I think in the context of what we're talking about, it's actually quite clear. What does this mean? Well, <clears throat> it means that Jesus is working through the Spirit. It means that Jesus is working through the Spirit. Because we, we saw this at Christ's baptism. Christ received the special anointing of the Spirit, and it is through the Spirit that Scripture says that he is performing these miracles. It is, and that is why when we receive the Spirit, we don't do the same miracles but that Jesus does, but Christ's followers are able to do things in the Spirit that we couldn't do before. Christ is doing these things 
in and through the Spirit of God. You see this simultaneous, inseparable operation of Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father has a will. The Son is carrying out these actions, and he's doing it through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of the Trinity at work. And so when Christ does these works, when he casts out demons, when he heals, when he stills storms, he does so through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what is happening? On a positive side, when we see these things, we believe. And again, that is the intention. That is the point of the exorcisms. That is the point of the healings. That is the point of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes and things like that. It is so that seeing, we may believe. That is how God's Spirit works. God's Spirit works through the ordinary means of grace, us taking the supper, us witnessing baptisms, us being baptized, us reading God's Word, us hearing God's words preached. He uses the Spirit in those ordinary means of grace to draw people to himself. The same was true in these miraculous demonstrations of grace that Christ had and the apostles had. And so when, they, when, when we see these things, we see them and we believe. We do that because of the Spirit. But we have the flip side of that because of these antagonistic scribes. And that what happens is that they see these things. They see the exorcism and they are not drawn to Christ but because they are attributing it to an evil entity, they are effectively finding a correspondence or calling the Holy Spirit demonic. By seeing Jesus do these things and saying that this is of Satan, they are denying not just Jesus, but they are denying the power of the Spirit. What they did is that they saw and they didn't believe. <coughs> they attributed what was of God to Satan. And what this is, is proof of what we'd call a hard heart. This is proof of what we'd call a reprobate heart. This is proof the one who says the things of God are actually demonic is the one who is opposed wholly in spirit and in life towards the thing of God. This exists. God's word talks about it. The Gospels, Matthew and Mark talk about it. John writes about this, how there are sins and sinners that demonstrate through their words and through their deeds that they are wholly opposed to the things of God. Now again, do we have an app that can tell who this is? Do we have a DNA test that can tell what this is? And the answer is no. That's impossible. That can't happen. But it exists. It's a real thing. But <clears throat> let me give you a qualification. Where is the line? How do you know if this is you? And church, let me tell you this. If you repent, then this isn't you. If you repent, this is not you. If you repent, you have not committed the eternal sin. If you repent, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Because this is a person who is not brought to repentance. And even more than this, if you are worried about this sin, if you... if the one who says, I am concerned that I have committed the unforgivable sin, that is testimony to somebody who has not committed the unforgivable sin. If you say, I wonder if in my past I committed the eternal sin. If you wonder that, if you think that, then you haven't. Because the one who has done that doesn't care about that. The one who has done that has no mind or no heart or no care to even consider that. So I've often had people that have come to me and said, I was really, really opposed to the things of God. I say, yep, yeah, so was the Apostle Paul. You're in good company. 
And think about that. Think about what Paul did. And that's just one example in Scripture where we have a picture of someone's heart, how antagonistic they were. You even have many members of the Pharisees and scribes that we see came out of that. Maybe even the ones who were were kind of the lackeys, the ones standing outside of the circle of those who are attributing Christ's work to demons, who they're thinking, this guy's going too far. If you repent, which is a gift from the Spirit, you haven't committed this sin. If you're worried about this sin, you haven't committed this sin. This is a passage that, like I said before, it's a hard saying, but understood in the context of what's being talked about. And again, we could go to the text in Matthew. We could see other texts that talk about this, and we could get greater clarification from a systematic perspective. But simply going through this text, we see that Christ is saying, I'm doing this work through the Spirit. These people are saying, no, you're not. You're doing this work through demons. And Jesus comes back and says, if that's how you feel about the Holy Spirit, then that's a sin that can't be forgiven. But the hope is there are some that toy with that thought as enemies of God, but they are not given over to a reprobate mind. And if you repent, then that is a demonstration that you have not committed that sin. You've committed sins that are worthy of death. Every one of us has. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin are death. That is true. So don't think too highly of yourself. However, because of Christ, if he grants you that gift of repentance, this is not a sin you've you've committed. And once more, if you're worried you've committed this sin, you haven't committed this sin. The softness, the, the, the suppleness of a heart that can even entertain that question is a heart that has not been given over to this sin. So again, church, the focus is often on damnation. Just like the focus is often on demons, the focus is often on the bad stuff. But Jesus also expresses great forgiveness. Look at this, verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever the blasphemies they utter. What wonderful hope for wretches like you and me. What wonderful hope for people who are stuck in the depths of the depravity that we all inherit as sons of Adam. That that whatever sins, whatever blasphemies, the awful things you said, the awful things you did, they will be forgiven. There are sins that aren't forgiven. Those are sins that are not repented of. Those are sins that are not covered in Christ's blood. But if you are covered in Christ's blood, if your identity is the Holy Spirit, then those sins are forgiven. You don't have to wonder that one thing I said when I was five, that rotten attitude I had when I was a teenager, those things that I did in college, the things that I did yesterday. If you are in Christ, there is forgiveness. We often think about the fair part the fair part of sinners receiving condemnation, not the unfair part, the great grace that's extended towards sinners. I said that was the last thing. That's one of those mean preacher tricks. I'll truly wrap it up now with this last text. I don't know if you notice that we have this interesting bracket. Mark writes this way, where he, he has this big story, Jesus casting out demons, being accused of being demonic, and then this thing about the eternal sin, but it's actually bracketed by two other texts. And I read two, two verses this morning at the beginning, verses 20 and 21. 
It says, and he came home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Some translate it, he has gone berserk. All right? Interesting how we give family a pass. The Pharisees and scribes, how could they say that to Jesus? But here his family is saying he's lost his senses. You weigh those two things. Would you say either of those things to the Son of God? You're casting out demons by the, by, by the prince of demons? You've lost your senses? Which one's better? Which one's worse? And then notice, so that's how this, this passage starts. And then it wraps up in a similar way in verses 31 through 35. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him, calling him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering him, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So church, again, we have these dramatic and, and, and kind of uh, remarkable pictures of these exorcisms and these accusations and all of that. But notice what brackets, what frames this whole conversation. The scribes and the Pharisees are antagonistic and they are accusing things of Jesus that may even demonstrate that they are of a reprobate mind that is past the point of, 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 of salvation. But the same thing is happening with his mother and brothers. They're doing the same thing. And I think literarily, literarily, literary, literarily, in the literature, thank you. <laughs> Mark is structuring this so we see that. Mary, oh, talk to your Catholic friends about this one. Mary herself is saying, Jesus, you got to stop this. His brothers, James, who becomes the head of the church later, who becomes kind of like the, 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 the archdeacon later in the church, he's saying, Jesus, cut it out. Stop it. The Pharisees are accusing him very, very outwardly with a very pointed finger but his mother and his brothers are embarrassed by him. Again, which one's worse? Which one's better? Which would you rather be? The one who points the finger at Jesus or the one who's embarrassed and hides from Jesus? The one who says, you gotta cut it out. Stop drawing crowds. Stop getting people around you. So although we're supposed to be impressed by and been moved by this dramatic encounter between Jesus and the scribes and this whole idea of him being possessed and them committing this great sin, we ought to focus on that. We must also realize that it's the kind of the normal people that commit these same sort of sins. It's the normal rank and file that deny Jesus, that try to get Jesus and the power of the Spirit to kind of stop being so loud, stop being so like, churchy. Augustine wrote this. He says, as for Mary, her nearness as a mother would have been little help for her salvation if she had not borne Christ in her heart in a more blessed manner than in the flesh. What a, you know, again, Rome claims Augustine as one of theirs, and he certainly said things that line up with that, but this, this sentiment does not line up with the Marian dogmas that have been embraced by the Church of Rome, the Immaculate Conception, the Bodily Assumption, the Perpetual Virginity, and things like that. Augustine says, if, if Mary didn't bear Jesus in her heart, it didn't matter that she bore him from her, her body. I mean, 
That's, that's clear. That's Scripture. I mean, if that's talk about the Reformation. That's what we're talking about. We're using the principle of the sufficiency of Scripture. But Mark makes it very clear that every one of us is far from God, and every one of us doesn't like it, doesn't like him, doesn't like his work, doesn't like what his Spirit is doing. It is only by his grace that we are drawn near. And so we, we ought not be overly fascinated by the demonic. We ought not be overly concerned about what the, the, the nature of our sin that we've committed, particularly if we've had periods of our life where we've been blasphemous. Because if we are in the Spirit, we know that that is covered and we know that Christ has the victory. It doesn't mean that we don't think about those things. It's that we think about those things in their proper perspective. We fear God we find peace in Christ, and we feel the grace of the Spirit. We fear God. We don't fear this world. We don't fear, fear the, the spiritual entities. We find peace in Christ. From whatever sins we have committed, if we are in Christ, we find peace in them, and we feel the grace of the Spirit. We are reminded of these things as we live our life, as we come to God's Word, as we see what's going around us. And in doing so, we are a testimony and a testament to the great grace and saving power of the Jesus who has bound the strong man and has given us the victory. So church, we're going to, here in a moment, take the Lord's Supper. I'll invite Justin and, and the other musicians to come up and lead us. But as we do so, consider how all of this, the victory over evil, the supremacy and authority of Christ, this was not something that he simply did. He bore the weight of the accusations of the Pharisees and scribes, and he bore the weight of the cross and our sins to make this happen. When we receive these elements, they ought to draw our minds back to that, but then in that same sense, we ought to celebrate and enjoy that victory. There was a great cross, a great cost, and there is a great victory, both accomplished on the cross. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the victory that we have in you. I thank you for the principle of the sufficiency of your word and the understanding that we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, but as a gift so that we may not boast. I pray that we don't boast in anything except for your Son, Jesus Christ. As we come and receive these elements, draw that near to our hearts and draw us nearer to you. It's in his name we pray, amen.